Thanks, Lorraine. Great to have that there. If you can keep that verse, uh, that section open, that'd be excellent. That's where we're going to focus our attention today as we continue our series in the book of Romans. I'm going to pray for us and ask that God would help us understand it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter preserved. We thank you, Father, that Paul wrote it, not on his own, but under the inspiration and empowering of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Father, that by that same Spirit, you are here this morning. Challenge and change us so that we might find our peace and rest in you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as uh, we continue this series, I want to start with a question. Uh, we'd love to live happily ever after. Is that right? What, why not? Yes. Fair enough. If anyone doesn't want to live happily ever after, you can put your hand up and tell me how you would like to live ever after. But I'm guessing generally we would like to live happily ever after. Some questions for us to think about then as we consider that. We're thinking about our ever after, and more particularly, our heavenly ever after. And there's some questions for us to think about whether we think we'll actually get there. Now, you might have heard these questions before, but I love them. I think they're very helpful. First question, are you 100% certain you'll go to heaven when you die? Some of you are nodding your heads. Fantastic. Some of you are going... So there's really only two answers to this question. Two answers are what? Yes and no. There is a third one we smuggle in, which is, I hope so. No, some of you don't know. Okay, right, so th th that's what generally happens. We have a you hope so, but you hope so is actually a what answer? It's actually a no. So are you 100% certain that you'll be with God in heaven? Oh, I hope so. That's actually not 100%. Congratulations, that's a no. Do you, do you understand? Okay, so there's our first question. You might think about your own answer to that. Secondly, imagine that we were to stand before the judgment seat of God, one day we will, and God was to say to us, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? What would your answer be as to why God should welcome you into glory? Have you got those answers in your head? Okay, if you're a Jew, you have a particular answer to that question. The Jews had a great answer to that question. Here's some things that they would have said in response to that question. What are the grounds for confidence? Number one, I'm a descendant of Abraham. I trace my descent from Abraham, father Abraham. Great. He, he, had, he had the promises of God. I'm one of his descendants. That means I'm of the nation of the Israelites. So I'm descended from Abraham. I'm one of the chosen nation. I'm one of the Israelites. I have the mark of the covenant on me. I've got circumcision. Fantastic. And I'm doing the best I can do by being obedient to the law. Okay? Doing the best I can do by being obedient to the law. That would be grounds for great confidence. Now, we're a million miles away, most of us, I would assume, here today, from being Jews. We're Australians. So as Australians, what's our grounds for great confidence? Well, if we were to ask people these questions, I suspect we might get answers like this. I'm descended from someone who went to church. My mum or dad went to church. They were very faithful, and I'm descended from them. Or maybe it was my great-grandmother. She went to church. I'm descended from someone who went to church. You might say, I'm Australian. Australia is God's country, so that's doing pretty well, okay? Uh, I, I'm confident because I'm an Australian. And more than that, I have the mark of census on me. I tick the census to say I'm a Christian, along with 61% of the rest of the population of Australia. 
So I must be confident. I'm, I'm descended from churchgoers. I'm an Australian. I tick the box in the census to say I'm a Christian, and I'm doing the best I can to be faithful by sending my kids to Christian schooling. See, that must be pretty good. There's a group of things that make me pretty confident that I am going to go to glory. Does that sound helpful? It may not be what God wants us to have confidence in because we saw, as Tony reminded us last week, and I preached a couple of weeks ago, it says in Romans 3, are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. There's actually a similarity between Australians, modern Australians, ancient non-Jews and Jews. In fact, between all humanity is that we're united in sin. We weren't last week. There's actually some good news, though. Each of us can be united in this. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of course, Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. In other words, there's level ground. We're all sinful and we all have the opportunity to be saved by faith. But what do the Jews do when they hear this? Well, I suspect, objection, Your Honour. Aren't we special still because we're children of Abraham? Aren't we special still? We're descended. That that should count for something, shouldn't it? And so what Paul's going to do in chapter 4 of Romans here is speak to the desire to the Jews still feel special as people who are descended from Abraham. Well, as we examine it, we're going to look at the verse in a second. Can I ask you, do you remember your first payday? Does anyone remember their first payday? Happy day? Did you get a pittance, a small amount, or did you get paid big? My first, my first payday was for a paper run. I can assure you we got almost absolutely nothing, but I felt really excited about it. I felt really proud. There's money in my bank account. Why do I feel proud on my payday? Because I earned it, right? I had to lug 400 papers around on my shoulder. It was, an, it was hard work, properly hard work, but I felt proud. What's the difference between a payday and a birthday? On the payday, you get what you deserve. On the birthday, they're all gifts, aren't they? No one walks around on their birthday going, I earned all this pile of... No one, no one does that. And, and no one writes a thank you note to their boss when they get their first paycheck. Right? No, no, no. My blood, sweat and tears made that happen. So we write thank you notes for gifts and we take pride in what we've earned for wages. Have a look with me how this helps us understand Romans 4, 1 to 8. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. There's something really beautiful happening here. What does the scripture say? 
Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. I've said here it's no karma accounting. You guys know how karma works, yeah, or at least how it's supposed to work. The, the, the logic of karma is you do good, what happens? Good comes to you. If you do bad, what's the logic? Bad will come and bite you on the backside, right? So karma accounting is you're a good person, good things happen. You're a bad person, bad things happen. This is not that. This is not that. This says God credits righteousness to those who believe in him. It's not because you did good. It's because you believed. We are credited. God says, I will count you as in right standing before me because you have believed in me. And to see how radical this is, we get so familiar with this that we just go, oh, of course God does that. Have a listen to what it says here in verse 5. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now, guys, you've got to see how radical this is. If you're ungodly, that means you're not winning God's favor by being good. But it says here that God justifies the ungodly. That's crazy. Grace is truly radical. Those who aren't right with God can be made right with God. I'll I'll, I'll put it as bluntly as I can put it, right? Bad people go to heaven. Is that messing with anyone's head? Bad people go to heaven. It's when we were sinners that Christ died for us. We're going to see in chapter 5 coming up soon. It's when we were God's enemies that he saved us. We didn't do enough good work for God to say, you're doing pretty well. I'm now going to count you as good enough to come to heaven. That is not what happened. It's when we trusted in God in our sin that he forgave us and saved us. That's radical. God is the one who justifies the ungodly. That should be causing you a little bit of concern. And here's the outcome of God's justification. He says, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. Transgressions is the same word as sin, but if we write sin twice, it gets a bit boring, right? Okay. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. It says in verses 7 to 8. Now, I want you to see there's two things for now. You can ask God's forgiveness today and you will be forgiven and your sins will be covered. That's brilliant. And that would make you right today. But what I always used to wonder as a kid was, what happens if I do something bad after that? I'm forgiven today, but what happens if just before I die, I have a terrible thought? What happens? Where do I go? What happens? And so I was trusting in the fact that I might have been forgiven then, but my future was uncertain. I want you to see here, there is hope for the future. Have a look what it says. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Can you see that? So here we see there's a present down payment on the future. You can know on the day you'll stand before God, if you've asked his forgiveness, that your sins will never be counted against you. That's brilliant, isn't it? And this is the only foundation for deep assurance. Because if you're trying really hard to be good enough, there will be a day when you aren't. And then what hope do you have? You can't be sure. Here it says, though, that if we're forgiven, we're forgiven, and God himself will never count our sins against us. That's pretty good assurance. 
Now, this uh, next illustration is very important. Does anyone know what Warney is uh, doing here? He looks like he's celebrating. He's actually asking a question. His question is, <laughs> why? Why are you playing cricket? No, no, he's, his question is, how's that? How is that, sir? He's actually asking, is that LBW out? Now, LBW, all of you know what that is, don't you? Great, good, I'm glad you said that. Uh, here's the thing, we're going to learn about LBWs today, okay? It's very important. What happens is, I should get you up, Luke, you probably should uh, tell us uh, about LBWs. But, okay, so here's the thing. So, uh, you're playing the ball like this. If the ball hits your pad and was going to go on and hit your wicket before your bat, pad before bat, you're out. And what he's doing is he's saying, hey, sir, I think that was going to hit the wicket. It hit the pad. It's going... How is that? Is he out? Now, you guys are really getting into this, I can tell, right? If it hits the bat before the pad, guess what? Not out. It is not LBW, which is leg before wicket. If it's bat before wicket, it doesn't matter. The order matters. Now, I'm going to draw a really long bow here and take you back to the Bible. It's going to matter. Okay, have a look with me. Have a look at verses 9 to 12. We're going to see the order matters. Is the blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith when he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also then the father of the circumcised, not only who was circumcised, but also follow in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let me explain. The Bible says in Genesis 15:6 that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's chapter 15 of Genesis. In chapter 16, we get a little date about how old he was. So it says in chapter 16, Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Bear with me, guys. We're going to get there. Okay, just bear with me. The important thing, see the number up there? What's the number up there? 86, you're paying attention. This is really great. Later on, so we're told that he had right standing. He believed the Lord and he was in right standing. Okay. Then we're told in chapter 17, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised and his son Ishmael was 13. Why does this matter? Because it tells us when circumcision was given. It tells us there's at least a 13-year gap between when he was counted as righteous and then when he was circumcised. Do you see that? Okay. Why does that matter? It's, it, it matters, he received circumcision as a sign then, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he's the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. In short, what it's saying is circumcision without faith just leaves you in wrath. What the Jews were saying is, I have the mark of the covenant, I'm descended from Abraham, tick, I'm a really good person. I have the mark of the covenant, circumcision. Tick. And what, what Paul's saying here is, no, 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 guys, you don't get it. 
Abraham was counted as right before God 13 years before he got this sign that you guys think is so important. Can you see that? So it's not circumcision. It can't be circumcision that is the thing that puts you in right standing with God because there was a massive gap. And so circumcision without faith just leaves you in wrath. And radically, faith without circumcision will see you saved. Because the thing isn't the sign. The thing is the faith. Can you see the difference? Brilliant. Now, I'm sure all of you are breathing a sigh of relief knowing that that's the case. Now, when I was a kid uh, at uh, Sunday school, I didn't like singing. (coughs) I didn't like singing very much at all. Until I discovered a song. The song was Father Abraham. Right arm, left arm, nod your head, shake your legs, turn around, sit down. I loved it. I got so into it. Every time we had singing in Sunday school, they'd ask us, what song do you want to sing? Put up my hand. Yes, Stuart. Father Abraham. Okay, again, yes, no worries. Every time, Father Abraham. Just loved it. But then I started to think as a person much further down the track, hang on. Isn't Abraham the father of the Jews? Is this a Jewish song? Wouldn't this be what they'd be singing in Saturday school uh, at the synagogue? Father Abraham, why am I singing it in Sunday school as a Christian? It doesn't make any sense. Like, how is that our song as Christians? How, how do we sing Father Abraham when he's the head of the Jews? We're going to see that in this little passage here. Have a look at verses 13 to 17. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. See, here's the thing. In Galatians, the reading that we heard before from Tom, we read this. Paul's talking to Jews in a church in Galatia. And they had the same problem. They're thinking circumcision counts, obeying the law counts, being descended from Abraham counts. And and this is what he writes. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. What's happening? God promised Abraham, you'll be right because you believe in me. 430 years later, the Jews got the law. 430 years later. It would seem it's going to make appealing to the law as the way to be right before God a little tricky. Do you see? Because there's this massive gap. Abraham was right before God by faith, and then 430 years later, the law comes. Well, that can't be how we're made right with God. Do you see? It was not through the law, it says in Romans 4, that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. 
For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. So here's the issue. If you could get right with God by obeying the law, then everyone would do that. You wouldn't need any faith just to obey the law. But it says here the problem is law brings wrath and not salvation. See, what happens if I give you 10 commandments, for instance, just hypothetically, and I said, keep them without error, who here thinks that they could do it? Just 10 commandments, not very many, is it? And if I pick the first one, honour your father and mother, that's not the first one, but if I picked one out and said, honour your father and mother, and you said, I have kept that flawlessly my entire life, I'd just look at you and say, you broke one of the other commandments, which is do not lie. Am I right? Now, that's just two out of ten. You've already got them down. We could run through the whole lot. You would find of those ten commandments, you and I have broken every one of them. And there were 613 laws in the Old Testament. Law brings God's wrath on us. It doesn't make us right before him. Can you see this? Law just writes us off. But there is another way. And the other way is faith in Jesus Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who have the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. See, here's the thing. Grace and faith break karma accounting. Grace and faith break karma accounting. We get what we don't deserve because of the wonderful grace of God. And what that means is, I can keep singing Father Abraham. And so can you. Right arm, left arm, nod your head, turn around, sit down. It's all good. Why? Because he's the father of all who believe, not just all who are descended from him by blood. Can you see? Now, it finishes off with something about promises. Two promises were made in the 80s. I'm sure there are a lot more, but here's two for you. Uh, one of them was made in 1984 by Arnold Schwarzenegger. He said, I'll be back. And he was. And it didn't work out very well for the people he came back to. Another promise was made in 1987 by a guy called Bob Hawke, who many of you won't know. But can anyone remember what he promised in 1987? Yes? No child will be in poverty by 1990. Great promise. Did it work? See, here's the thing. Promises matter. And they matter not just because they're a commitment, but what happens is we judge the power of the promiser on whether they can keep their word. So here's what we see in, uh, in verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. See, here's Abraham. And he's 100 years old and he's been told by God, you'll be the father of many nations. And he goes, I'm 100 years old, and my wife is very old. What we are talking about now is a nursing home miracle. Yeah, it's a nursing home miracle. These two 
are going to bring forth new life. And it says Abraham did not doubt. He did not waver in unbelief. Instead, it says, being fully persuaded, you see that? That God had the power to do what he had promised. Where did Abraham look? He did not look to himself. There is no hope here. Instead, he looked to God through whom all things are possible. You see? The one who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. If you want your faith to rest on something, let it not be yourself. Let it rest on the God who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Because that's what he did. He was fully persuaded that God was able to, to bring life from the dead, which it must have felt like, I have no doubt, when Sarah got pregnant. Truly extraordinary, right? Now, I've asked you before if, we played, if you played Monopoly, right? And some of you have, and some of you know the joy of the way Monopoly always finishes, i.e. with a board upside down and someone storming off to their room. Part of the process is potentially getting one of these cards from the community chest, which I like, bank error in your favour, collect $200. Fantastic, right? What did you do to earn that? Right. However, your bank balance goes up, doesn't it? And you can put the $200 next to the sneaky $500 you've got hidden underneath the board, yeah? No? No one does this. Okay, good. So here's the thing. That's credited to your account. You now find yourself with more money than you had before. It's just credited. It's counted as yours. Have a look at what God has done for us in his son in verses 23 and following. The words it was credited to him, that's Abraham, were not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is absolutely brilliant, right? And it says here that the words it was credited in the Old Testament weren't written just for him. Isn't this great? You can use your Old Testament because it wasn't written just for Abraham, it was written for us as well. Be encouraged, the Old Testament, even the Old Testament speaks to us today. How beautiful. But what's the basis for our faith? Why should we be fully persuaded that God can do what he promised? It says in 25, speaking of Jesus, he was delivered over to death for our sins. Now you guys know this. This is the Easter story. The reason that you and I can be forgiven is not that God just decided not to care about sin anymore. Instead, the death of Jesus works two things, propitiation and atonement. And you go, oh, big words. We don't need them at the end of the sermon. Just hang on. Propitiation. We are under the wrath of God. That's what I deserve as a sinner. Propitiation is the wrath is turned aside. Wrath turned aside. It was turned on to Jesus on the cross. My sin was punished in the Son. Atonement, we are at one with God because when Jesus died, he paid the price for my sin. I deserve to die. He died in my place. Now I am at one with God. That's what the cross did. And then it says he didn't stay dead. He was raised to life for our justification. Jesus came alive again. That's a great story, right? That's pretty good news. Why does it matter? I sum it up this way. Because he is standing, we are in right standing. Jesus was raised to life again. He stands at the right hand of his Father in heaven and he says, These are mine. These are mine. 
I bought them. They love me. They trust me. These are my people. He was raised for our justification, that you and I might stand just as if I'd never sinned. How beautiful. Let's revisit the evidence. I've been making the case today that faith matters. Faith is the key. Let's see, four reasons. Righteousness is credited, not earned. You can't do anything to earn righteousness. It's the gift of God. It's credited. Secondly, we've seen that faith came before circumcision. How much earlier? At least 13 years before it. So it can't be that we're saved by circumcision, but by faith. We saw that faith came before law. How early? A mere matter of 430 years earlier? That's pretty compelling, isn't it? It can't be that we're made right by the law. Fourthly, faith trusts in the power of the promiser. It doesn't look to self. I won't say I'm confident before God because I'm good. It will say I'm confident because God declares me right. We'll look to him and not ourselves. Are you looking to works this morning? Are you someone who has said, why shall I let into my heaven? Did you think to yourself quietly, well, I go to church. I put my body in this space, or even better, I put my body in this space and my parents did that as well. That's pretty good inheritance. Are we people who say, I'm Australian. God must love me. Are we people who would say, hey, I tick the census box. I'm in that bunch of people who are called Christians. That's got to count for something, doesn't it? God saw that. Are we people who say, I'm actually doing it for the next generation? God, you've got to give me some credit for looking after my family well. Or maybe I've signed them up for scripture in the public system. That's even more gutsy. The problem with all this is that our good works work wrath. They don't cleanse away sin. They bring on us the wrath of God because they aren't trusting in him. They're looking only to self. In its place, I want to ask those of you who are here today, do you treasure deeply these verses? Verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the one whose sins the Lord will never count against them. Do you love this scripture? Do you know it? Do you know it's true that God will never count your sins against you? And if that's true, who would remind you of your sins? Who would remind you of your sins? It may be that you have a brother or sister or a spouse who likes to remind you of your sins, not them. Who else would get in your ear and make you think about your sins? Only Satan. Because God has forgiven, forgotten, and cast them into the sea. You can know that this is true. And so all I want to ask you today is, who will remind you of this great truth? How will you remind yourself of this? In your Bible, underline verses 7 and 8. If you've got our Bible here at church, go for gold. If you don't have a Bible to take home, take ours and underline that. Find a way to type this out at home. Put this somewhere when you feel condemned. Know the great assurance that your sins are covered if you're trusting in Jesus. Faith is the key to our forgiveness. Faith for our forgiveness looks to Jesus who is our justification. 
It's looking to Him. And when we look to Him, that alone is the path to 100% certainty because He has the power to do what He's promised. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the wonderful blessing of forgiveness by faith. Lord, help us not to treat this as an old thing or a boring thing or something that we've known for so long. Help us to find freshness in it. Help us to find great confidence and assurance. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.